Warning, the following podcast is not suitable for all audiences. We go into great detail with every case that we cover and do our best to bring viewers even deeper into the stories by utilizing disturbing audio and sound effects. Trigger warnings from the stories we cover may include violence, rape, murder, and offenses against children. This podcast is not for everyone. You have been warned. The bond between a mother and child is unlike anything in this world. For most mothers, as soon as they lay eyes on their baby, they experience a love that is indescribable. And there's an overwhelming urge to do everything in their power to keep that baby safe. Protecting your child from danger is a biological characteristic that humans have experienced since the beginning of time. And there's a lot of danger out there. There's rapists, murderers, pedophiles, mass shooters. The list goes on and on. And as a parent, you not only want to protect your child from these people, but you also want to raise them so that they don't end up becoming one of those people. However, no matter how hard you try, at the end of the day, your kid is their own person. And you just have to hope that you raise them well enough to make good choices and to be a good human. But as we've seen, there are a lot of bad apples in the world. People who had a good upbringing and still turn out to be horrible people. And some of these bad apples will turn on the person who loves them the most, their mother. In our case for today, we are going to be talking about one of the most disturbing cases I've ever heard. One that I knew we had to tell since we first started the podcast. It involves an 18-year-old boy named Kevin Davis. Kevin's mom, Kimberly, loved her son more than anything in the world. She was a good mother. And I'm sure when she gave birth to him, she experienced all of the beautiful emotions we just mentioned. But after Kevin was born and she held him in her arms, she could have never known that one day, that very child would bludgeon her to death, rape her corpse, and mutilate her organs with his own bare hands. No mother could ever expect that from the child they love so dearly. But as we mentioned, there are a lot of bad apples out there. And Kevin Davis is one of the worst. So, here is his story. Listener discretion is heavily advised. I'm Courtney Brown. And I'm Colin Brown. And you're listening to Murder in America.
On the morning of March 27, 2014, a husband and wife named Timothy Johnson and Luanda Houston were sitting at home enjoying their day off. The couple lived in Robstown, Texas, which is about 25 minutes west of Corpus Christi. And it was your average morning. The two woke up, let their dog out, made some coffee, and sat down in their living room to watch TV. It was around 10 a.m., and they had no idea that the personification of evil was about to walk up to their doorstep. Timothy and LaWanda weren't expecting anyone that morning, so they look out of their window to see a young man who they didn't know. LaWanda then asks what the young man needs, and in response, he gestures for her to come to the door. My doorbell rang, and I just happened to, you know, kind of turn my head, and I said yes, and he waved to me like this. He said, come closer. So LaWanda gets up and opens the door. Standing on her porch was a harmless-looking young man who was small and wore glasses. LaWanda wasn't alarmed by his presence at all. That was until he said the following sentence. I need y'all to call 911. I just murdered someone. Imagine you're standing in the comfort of your home and a stranger comes up and tells you that they just committed a murder. It's obvious that they don't want to kill you, so you're not in any danger, but still, it's haunting. A killer is on your front porch. Timothy tells LaWanda to go grab her phone, and she quickly calls the police while he stays at the door to keep an eye on the young man. The guy was standing at the door. He asked me if I'd call 911. He just murdered somebody. Mm-hmm. So I told my wife to call 911. And I said, yes. And then that's when my husband came around the corner. He's like, I need y'all to call 911. I just murdered someone. Mm-hmm. And I looked at my husband. My husband started talking to him. And I just came into the garage and called 911 and was talking to them. And they asked me, did he have blood on him or anything like that? And I said, no, not that I can see. And they asked me if I could take him my phone so he could talk to him. The young man talks to dispatch. And after a few minutes, they tell him that an officer will be there shortly. And with that, the phone call ends. From there, Timothy and LaWanda stay with him on the front porch waiting for the police to arrive. And there's a bit of tension in the air. So Timothy decides to ask him some questions. And I went outside and was talking to him and asked him questions about it, but he just told me that he, I asked him who he killed, and he said his mother. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, how'd you do that? He said, I beat her with a hammer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, why'd you do it? And he just kept telling me lots of reasons. He would never tell me why. Mm-hmm. What kind of reasons did he tell you? He just kept telling me lots of reasons. Oh, okay. So he wouldn't he tell you the reason, just no, the word lots of reasons. Yeah. So we just, I stood out there and, and waited with him until the cops got here to pick him up. Did you hear him say why he killed somebody or who he killed? He said he, when I came back to tell him that the cops were on their way, him and my husband was having a conversation and my husband said, well, who'd you kill? And he said, my mother. He's like, well, why'd you kill your mom? He's like, it was just a lot of reasons, you know, and that, that was it. He kept, he kept turning his head looking toward the road, not actually eye contact with us. 
Did he look uh, distraught? Did he look uh, agitated? Or was he acting like he was upset? With the call, he was real calm. He never did raise his voice. He never, you know, tried to get out of nothing. He just stood there and talked to me. All right. So when he told you he had killed his mother, did he? Did he? Did he ask you to call the police, or he? Yeah, that's the first thing he asked when we went to the door. If we called 911, did he just murder somebody? Now, something that stood out to the couple was that the young man was abnormally calm given the reality of his situation. LaWanda could tell he was nervous, but he was polite and composed, and she would later say that she even felt a little bad for him. Sensing he was nervous, she offered him a drink, but he declined. And while they waited there, he thanked them for their hospitality. I told him I was sorry, you know, for the problems that he was having, and I kind of felt sorry for him, and in a way, just how he was, you know, acting and everything. He was scared but calm, right. and I was trying to keep him that way, so I offered him something to drink. Did he get something for you? No, sir. He told us he was scared of us because we were too nice to him. He's never had no one nice to him, he That's said. told me. Yeah. <laughs> Did you feel like you, you were in danger at any time that you were talking to a murderer? I felt nervous, you know, because I've never had anything like that happen before, and I didn't know how to react, but on the phone call, I made sure and called 911 again, because they were taking too long, and she's like, well, do you feel threatened? And I said, no, but I don't know what could happen, because he just murdered someone, and he's calm, so that kind of made me nervous, <laughs> you know. When, well, did you feel like you and your husband might be in danger at some point in time? Yes, I, I did. When someone knocks on your door and says he just murdered someone, you're kind of in shock, you know, and did nervous. You believe, did you believe him? In a way I did, but in a way I, I didn't. I thought maybe he might have been on medication or something, you know, because he was just too calm and just, you know, nonchalant about everything. Did you believe him? Not at first. And, uh... When I started talking to him, after I told my wife to call 911, and I started talking to him, and the more I asked him, and he coming out with answers just like that, I figured something had happened. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't ever tell me why he done it or nothing. He just told me that he done it with a hammer. That's all he told me. Okay, did he seem like he might have been a mental case to you, or was he talking normal? He was just talking normal. He's, Okay, so it's not every day somebody comes to your home and knocks on the door and tells you he killed somebody. No, sir. Okay. Okay, okay anything else that you think may be important? Um, not at this time. Okay. If we were to tell you he did kill somebody, would you believe it? Yeah. When the police finally arrive at the home, they see the young man on the porch, and he willingly puts his hands in the air, ready to surrender. And from there, they take him back to the station for questioning. Investigators would soon learn that the young man was 18-year-old high school student Kevin Davis, but nothing could have prepared them for what was ahead. While Kevin was taken to the station, other officers went by the Windrush Apartments in Corpus Christi. Kevin lived there in a two-bedroom complex with his 50-year-old mother named Kimberly Hill. Investigators didn't have all of the information about their family just yet, All they knew was that Kevin and his mother lived in apartment 1707 and that Kimberly's body could be found inside. As the detectives approached the door, they had no idea what was on the other side, but they would soon be met with a gruesome discovery. Upon entering the home, you could already see the blood. You could also smell it. On the floor were bloody drag marks from the living room all the way to one of the bedrooms. 
And in that bedroom, investigators would find the body of Kimberly Hill. The crime scene was like something out of a movie. The things that Kevin Davis confessed to doing um, to his mother and the ways that he hurt her were things that you don't normally see every day. Kimberly's body was on the floor. And as soon as you looked at her, you could tell that she was bludgeoned in her head. Her skull was practically in two, with brain matter coming out. And right next to her was a bloody hammer, the murder weapon. There was about uh, 18 lacerations about the head, uh, scattered about the surface of the head. And something else that stuck out was that she didn't have on any pants or underwear which is not something you normally see when someone murders their mother. Apartment 1707 was now a crime scene, and the town of Corpus Christi was about to be rocked with the news of one of the most disturbing crimes imaginable. As a little background on the family, 50-year-old Kimberly Hill was born on March 28, 1963 to Sharon Violet Maples and Ray Hill in Miami, Oklahoma. To everyone who knew her, they described her as loving and nurturing. She was also disciplined and a hard worker. Earlier in Kimberly's life, she was a Marine Corporal who served her country for 10 years. But after her time in the military, she decided to settle down in Corpus Christi and work in hospice care. And not everyone is cut out for this kind of job. It's difficult, strenuous, and you're helping people who are at the end of their life. So it's not easy, but she loved to help others. It's who she was at her core. Kim was also still very young at heart. She loved going to concerts, and she was even known to skydive from time to time. But more than anything, Kim was a great mom who was extremely devoted to her two children. Kim gave birth to her daughter, Desiree Hill, when she was 26 years old. And for a while, it was just them two. Then six years later, on December 27, 1995, she had her second child, Kevin Davis. Now, Kevin's father ended up leaving their family shortly after he was born and eventually moved to Fort Worth, about five and a half hours away. And because of this, Kevin never really had a good relationship with him. In fact, during his interrogation, it was clear that Kevin held some resentment towards his father, calling him an idiot. But despite being all alone raising her two kids, Kimberly handled it pretty well. Like we mentioned, she was a hard worker who always put her kids first. And she always provided for them, giving them everything they ever needed in life. Kevin himself would even say, after her murder, that she was a great mom. But as Kevin grew up, it was clear that he was different than most kids his age. Most described him as awkward. He wasn't very social and usually kept to himself. In school, Kevin loved English, but he didn't get the best grades. He also didn't participate in any sports or extracurricular activities. How do you do in schoolwork? Going back to school, how do you do in schoolwork? Pretty mediocre. I never really, I never really could muster, but didn't even really care. I mean, I guess I excelled in English for all that was worth. Okay. How about uh, sports? No, I, I don't like sports. You don't like sports? Football? I know, I know you're a little small for football, but... Oh. You know. What school did you go to? Ray High School. Ray? And you were in 10th grade? Yeah. Kevin also didn't really have a lot of friends. Many people considered him to be an outcast who always made people feel a little uneasy. 
And while most teens spend their free time socializing, Kevin liked to stay in his room playing video games and watching dark and violent films. And soon enough, Kimberly began to have some concerns about her son. She obviously wanted the best for him. She wanted him to have friends and feel comfortable in school. But during his high school years, like most teens, Kevin started protesting about going to class. Then around October of 2013, Kimberly confided in someone about the issue she was having with Kevin. It wasn't a friend or family member. It was their apartment building's manager. What had happened when Kimberly came over to my office like about a couple of months ago, saying that she was having trouble with Kevin because he didn't want to go to school. All he wanted to do was be playing games. And she was really frustrated. And that's all we talked about. Okay, so the... Do you remember more or less? I know you don't know the exact date, but how long before that, that this lady Kimberly came to the office to talk to you about her son? Only about, like November, October. It might have been in October, uh, 2013. Oh, okay, so it was. It was that month. It was. It wasn't like in fall. Okay, so she said that he, uh, he didn't want to go to school anymore? He didn't want to go to school. Did he say, he, did she say he was violent or anything? Or no, she mentioned nothing about no violent, no, nothing like that. Just that he didn't want to go to school, that was it. According to this account, Kevin was experiencing normal teenage behavior. Every kid from time to time dreads going to school. Many also fight with their parents about it. So this wasn't out of the ordinary. And Kevin was, in fact, still attending his classes. And from what everyone could tell, these were the only issues they were having. Kimberly didn't alert anyone to signs that she was in danger, or that Kevin exhibited any other really concerning behaviors. In fact, people that knew the family said that Kevin was a good kid. Were you aware of any problem between her and her son? I was, I was not, no, no, sir. And she had never expressed to me any, any problems with her son at all. Not, not whatsoever. If anything, uh, I just talked to her that he was a good kid. Mm-hmm. You know, that really surprised me, you know. Okay. That he was a good kid. Months would pass and there seemed to be no other issues. But no one could have known the thoughts going through Kevin's mind, especially not his mother. On March 26, 2014, the night before Kevin turned himself in, A friend of Kimberly's, the woman living directly above her apartment, had some of her family come over. The woman's daughter was named Sierra Solis, and she and her fiance, along with her child, arrived at the complex around 9 p.m. that day. On their way in, they ran into Kimberly outside of her door. As usual, she was her normal, friendly self, and nothing seemed to be awry. Sierra and Kimberly engaged in a little small talk, and then Kimberly goes inside of her apartment, never to be seen alive again. And I saw Miss Kim right there. She was opening up her door like she always does. And she told me hi, and I was doing, and she saw the baby, and told him he's cute, and good night. We said good night to each other, and tell my mom to call her. And I said, okay. What was her demeanor? Was she happy? Was she upset? Was she angry? Yeah, she looked, she was happy. She just, I mean, she talked to me. She just talked to my baby, like... She just talked to us. She was fine to us. Like, you know, uh-huh. she just her normal self, like the way she always was. But the same could not be said about Kevin. Not long after they spoke to Kimberly, Sierra ran into him. And although Kevin was always a little strange, something was different about him that night. When he spotted Sierra and her fiancé, he just glared at them. 
almost as if he was upset by their presence. And after a few minutes of awkward staring, he went inside of the apartment. Well, I was asleep and I went upstairs and that's when I saw that guy, Kevin, I guess go, I want to say around five minutes or 10 minutes after. And he was just staring at me, like all like mess, like, huh? It was like five minutes. That's what my fiance is saying, like five minutes after. But he was just staring ugly at a, like at me. And I told my fiance, look, he's looking at me. And my fiance looked at him and like after that, he looked at him. He like made like a smirk at us and went inside. Sierra and her family would actually stay the night at her mom's apartment that night. She recalled at some point in the night she heard a thud. But other than that, there wasn't a lot of noise. And even if there had been, there was no way she could have ever known what was truly happening in the apartment beneath her. And how, how, how long did you stay there that night at your mom's? I spent the night there. Okay. Did you hear any noises, Any anything? No, that's what I'm freaking out on. I heard like a thump or something, but I didn't pay attention to it because there's a lot of cats and dogs outside and so no the animals always make noises, so I wouldn't think anything of it. And recently there has been raccoons in the trash, so I didn't like think anything. Okay. And I actually was scared because I slept with the window open that night. And my son and my fiance slept in the room and I slept in the living room with the windows open. The next morning, Kathleen Flanagan, one of Kimberly's co-workers, thought that it was strange when Kimberly didn't show up at their worksite office. They had a meeting that morning, and Kim was never known to skip without telling anyone. Well, we have, um, normally at our office in the morning, we have reports in the morning where our staff gets together and we fill them in on anything that came in on call over the, over the night. The report that we receive... Normally, on um, weekdays, it isn't mandatory for staff to be there. So we have some of our staff there and some that are not, some that start out in the field. Normally, um, Kim would come in in the mornings, and she was not there that morning. Even further, the two had just spoken the day before, and Kim seemed great. Now, Kim's boss, Celeste McCraw, just figured that she had gone straight to the nursing home to help with one of her hospice patients, which was pretty common at her job. Sometimes she comes into the office, sometimes she goes directly out to care for patients, so it's not unusual for her to not come in. But concern started to grow when she didn't show up at the nursing home either. One of the employees was expecting to meet her at one of the nursing homes, uh-huh. and she was not there at the nursing home. The uh, employee called her a couple of times, did not get her on the phone, and so had called the office to see if she had come into the office, and she had not. At this point, knowing she was a complete no-show at her job, everyone is getting pretty worried. So they all start to call her phone. So we had called her one time and had not reached her. And then shortly, I guess it was within about a 15-minute time range, we had gotten a call from, I don't know who it was, I did not take the call myself, but one of the employees had called, uh, had come to me and said that someone had called doing a wellness check on Kim. The employee did not get the person's name. They just said that it sounded like it was either, uh, that it was someone in law enforcement. And they said that they were doing a wellness check. Uh, At that point, I uh, decided I was going to go to Kimberly's house and check on her and see if she was all right. With Kim not answering her phone, her coworkers knew that something wasn't right. So they called the police to do a wellness check on 50-year-old Kimberly Hall. 
Celeste, her boss, was so worried about her, she actually went to the Windrush Apartments herself to make sure everything was okay. When Celeste drove up to Kimberly's apartment, she knew it wasn't good news. There were police cars everywhere, which is never a good sign. So I got in my car, I went to her apartment, and when I got to the apartment, um, when I pulled into the drive, I saw that there were police cars, multiple police cars there. I pulled up to one of the police cars and introduced myself, gave the gentleman my business card, told him I was Kimberly's boss, and was checking on her because I realized that she was not out seeing patients and that... She was missing, apparently, because she, and we thought she was providing care for patients, but apparently she had not been, and I wanted to make sure she was all right, and at that point, um, he told me that he could not give me any information, but um, that they were there investigating. Around the same time that police discovered Kimberly's body, Kevin Davis was being placed in an interrogation room at the Corpus Christi Police Department. Video footage shows him sitting alone in a blue chair as he places his hand on his chin and blankly stares ahead. There are no tears, no signs of sadness or regret. In fact, there's no emotion at all. Eventually, detectives Romario Torres and Ariel Garcia come into the room, sit across from him, and read him his rights. I said, I was telling you, before I talk to you, we just need to read your rights, make sure you understand what's going on. Um, Right now, you're accused of murder. Kevin nonchalantly signs his name on the paper in front of him, letting the detectives know that he's aware of his rights. In the video, he looks almost childlike, and he sounds like a kid, too. These rights were read or explained to me before the statement. I do hereby, knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily, waive the rights listed above. No one has threatened me, forced me, or promised me anything to make this statement. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Okay, you can go ahead and sign it right here. After this, Kevin and the detectives actually share a few laughs when he accidentally dates the document incorrectly. His calm and collected demeanor does not align with the crime he's about to admit to. Most detectives are used to dealing with murder, but these detectives had no idea just how monstrous the young man sitting across from them truly was. And now that they got all of the important stuff out of the way, it was time to talk about the murder. You've talked to some people, you want to get some stuff off your chest. Uh, you know, we're here to listen to you. Why are you here? What happened? You tell us what, you know, what happened. Well, have you, has anybody gone to the house yet? Do you really? We know what happened. We have, but we want to hear it from you. Or we have an idea. You're the only one looking at us. Start at the beginning, man. What what caused all this? Well, the very beginning, I asked my mother for permission to die, or rather, kind of commit suicide, the sort of beating around the bush sort of thing. Because, mm-hmm. well, well, that doesn't really matter why I wanted to kill myself. Sure it does. I'm bored with life. I don't like life. Mm-hmm. I don't like people. I don't like living it, basically. There's really nothing, anything depressing about it. Just this what it is. And so... I wrote the note. Kevin found life to be boring, and he felt as if there was no point in living. So in the late hours of March 26th, 2014, the day before he murdered his mom, 
he wrote out a suicide note addressed to Kimberly and his sister. And it read this. March 26th, 2014. Life resignation notice. I had a change of heart. I said I was going to do it. And so now I need to speak to my word. I am a man after all, albeit a hilarious one. Too much damn work, too many obligations. Seriously, fuck people. But most of all, fuck me. By the way, I've always fantasized about murdering and raping you two. It's kind of funny how you never really know someone, not even your own son or brother. As Kevin was writing out this suicide note, he started to confess about his fantasies of murdering and raping his mom and sister. Fantasies he had since he was just a preteen. You know what happened? And then she did a Well, no, actually, I molded over. And then on a whim, actually, I turned it over, wrote a plan to kill both my mother and my sister, quite frankly, because that's always been a thing of mine. Mm -hmm. I'm a bit of a pervert. Um, Is it like a a fantasy thing? It is, actually. How long have you had this thought you went? It's around my preteens, actually. Yeah. You ever received uh, any kind of atten- uh, medical attention, psychological? Uh, do you feel like you can cope with that? Yeah. Nope, I never really seek help, actually. Mm-hmm. I just accepted it as a part of me. I wasn't really ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. It just was what it was. Kimberly always knew her son was different, and he was known to say some off-putting things, but she could have never known what was truly going through his mind. You ever tell anybody else what your plans were? Uh, that, you know, what you wanted to do your mom or your sister? No, but over the years, there were hints. As a younger boy, I was a, a lot dumber, a lot more angsty, you know. I said things, but I guess they basically brushed it off. I guess the hints were everywhere, but they're my family. Family looks past that kind of stuff, or they try to not look at it, mm-hmm. I guess. Earlier, Kevin had told his mother that he wanted to die. Apparently, Kevin was known to say things like this, but this time she was fed up. So much so that she even told Kevin that she wanted him to go stay with his sister for a while. After this interaction, Kevin went back to his room and suddenly had a change of heart. He didn't want to kill himself anymore. Instead, he wanted to act on those fantasies. So he grabbed a cord and started making his way towards his mother who was sitting down in the living room. Kevin approached his mother from behind and threw the cord around her neck and began to pull but he quickly discovered that she wasn't going to die that way. Strangling someone requires a lot of strength and effort, and Kevin wasn't strong enough to cut off her airway. There was a brief struggle, and Kimberly started to scream. It didn't work out too well. She started screaming, and so I went to her room, Mm -hmm. opened a drawer at the very bottom to the right. I pulled out a hammer. I went back in the living room, and well, you kind of get the gist from there. Following this, Kevin quickly ran to her bedroom and grabbed a hammer. Imagine sitting in your living room enjoying your evening and you suddenly feel a cord being wrapped around your neck. The only other person in the home is your child. Kimberly turned her head and quickly came to the devastating realization that her own son was trying to kill her. She screamed and struggled. Then before she knew it, Kevin reappeared in the room holding a hammer. He approached her with the hammer lifted in the air above his head. And with all of his might, he bashed it down onto his mother's skull. The first blow knocked her to the ground, but she was still conscious. 
Kevin recalled that she even tried to play dead. He then stood over her and hit her again and again until she passed out. She was out pretty quickly, kind of tried to play dead at first, but then I finished it. So you hit her with a hammer when she was sitting in the sofa in the living room? No, first I tried to strangle her, and that didn't work, right. she grabbed the cord, so I raced back into her room, mm -hmm. grabbed the hammer, came back out, and then did it. How many times did you hear with the hammer in the living room? At least 20, but then she was still alive. I dragged her into the room, as you probably clearly saw. And Colin and I always say this, but go ahead and tap your finger 20 times. It really gives you an understanding of just how many blows that actually is. The animalistic rage Kevin experienced, slamming a hammer down that many times on his mother's skull, is unbelievable. At the end of the attack in the living room, blood was everywhere, spattered across the room. It was on Kevin himself, and even on the ceiling. Kimberly was unconscious, barely clinging on to life. And from here, Kevin drags her into the bedroom. Once there, Kevin starts to bludgeon her again. Did you use a knife on her? Actually, I was going to, but no, I didn't get to do that. Did you, well, did you, I guess you never got to stab her with a knife? No. It was all with a hammer? It was all with a hammer where, in my hand. Where did you hit her with a hammer? The head. All in the, all in the head area? All in the head, I believe. She, I may have gotten her hand because she was covering herself. Oh. Top, back, mainly. Oh. No, actually the entrance wound is around yonder somewhere here. Okay. And then, uh, so when, when you dragged her to the, the living room, I mean to the bedroom, you kept on hitting her there? What? Yeah, Kev kinda. Kevin continued to slam the hammer down on his mother's skull, painting the walls with more streaks of blood. At the end of the bludgeoning, Kimberly's head was split in two, exposing her brain. But according to Kevin, she was still alive. He knew this because she was snoring. And in his mind, it was time to finish her off. But he didn't want to use the hammer anymore. Seeing her brain exposed between the crack in her skull, Kevin decided to reach inside of her head and squeeze her brain between his fingers. So uh, that's when you reached in and grabbed her brain? Yeah, I kicked at it a bit. Then I just, uh, that was kind of silly, but then yeah, I just decided to reach in and kind of just warmed my hands into her brain to kind of just, just cut it. She was still snoring. Okay, so she was still alive? She was still alive. Actually. And you went in there and you kind of grabbed those brains? Yeah, just finished it. All right. Now at the scene, investigators also discovered a bloody knife. And at first, when they asked Kevin about the knife, he denied ever using it. But after a few minutes, he remembers that he did use the knife to, quote, stir her brain. And there was some blood in the knife, but you said you never used it? I guess just blood just from where you grabbed it around the... Oh, that knife. Actually, I used that to stir her brains up a little, but then that didn't really work out, so I just kind of decided to delve on it. Did you do that in the living room or the bedroom? Because we found that in the... It wasn't in the bedroom. I may have started out. So. Yeah, actually, I used a knife in the living room, and then I... Didn't I take it with me? So the, her brains were already kind of... Coming out when in the living room when you dragged it? Yes, but she was still snoring like a baby, and so I just kind of dragged her. Kevin would later tell a psychiatrist named Dr. Joel Kutnick 
that his mom's brain matter felt like putty. He also confessed that after he took his hands out of his mother's skull, he noticed that there was brain matter on his fingers. But rather than wipe it off, he decides to taste it. After a brutal beating and having her brain squished inside of her head, Kimberly Hill had finally succumbed to her injuries. But unfortunately, Kevin wasn't finished with her just yet. From here, he decided to remove his mother's clothing and have sex with her corpse. So, uh, so after you, uh, you went in and you killed her and you made sure that she was dead by grabbing her brain and moving around, uh, then you took her clothes off or what? Or she already... Uh, I actually had to drag her by her clothes to get her in there. It was very laborious, actually. Mm-hmm. She's a pretty big woman, she's heavy. Yeah. Wait, is she your natural mother? Biological mother? Yeah, actually she is my natural mother. Mm-hmm. I take after my father. And then what did you do after that? Then I had sex with her corpse. You did? Mm-hmm. Did you come inside her? I did, actually. Have you ever done that before, like that sex with her? No, I haven't, actually. This was just the first time? Oh yeah, I lost my virginity to a corpse. Okay. Okay. What, what kind of thrill did you get by having sex with I'd always loved my mother, I guess, in the wrong sort of way, but a kind of love, I guess. Maybe some rage. Mm-hmm. Maybe just a little. Oh. In a fro- Freudian style? Freudian? Uh, I kind of get where you're coming from, sure. Yeah. It's unclear if Kevin actually knew what Freudian style meant, but it's the idea that a male child is attracted to their mother. It's a controversial concept, but in this case, it seemed like Freud was right. There are apparently men out there that are attracted to their mothers. But after Kevin admitted that he lost his virginity to his mother's corpse, he backtracks a little. It turns out that wasn't his first sexual encounter. Trigger warning, this next part includes the killing and sexual abuse of an animal. Okay, so before that you had never had sex? Well, I guess... Since I'm being yeah. quiet about it, I might as well tell you now. I Yeah, and it's on the note, too, the P.S. part. Uh, we used to have a gray cat named um, Claire. Oh, yeah, bestiality is a thing of mine, too, mm-hmm. now, now you know. And so I um, I strangled it, I drowned it, and then I cut it open. And you know the rest. Mm-hmm. You kind of get the rest. You had sex with the cat? With the dead cat? Yeah, ripped it open, stuck it in there. So not only did he kill the cat, but after drowning it, he cut it open and had sex with it. You, you ever had sex with a leopard? No. No. So that, your thing, uh, having sex with a leopard, that doesn't turn you on. It's a dead, dead thing, dead person, dead animals. That's what turns you on? I don't necessarily mind. I don't have standards or morals. Mm-hmm body to body and in the end piece of meat I guess it's harsh to say but mm-hmm. but no I don't necessarily mind back at the scene after having sex with his mother's body Kevin takes a bath to wash all the blood off of himself 
Did you change in the bathroom? Did you? I did. I even I took a bath before then. My penis really well. That's a little personal, but yeah, I needed to clean it off, and so um, and then I, then I changed. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you remember from his suicide note. Kevin's fantasies of rape and murder were not just limited to his mother. He also wanted to do the same to his sister, Desiree. At the time, she was 24 years old, living in an apartment close by. But ultimately, Kevin decided against it. How about your sister? What's your sister's name? Uh, Desiree Hill. Was it a, a fantasy of yours to kill her as well? It was. Did you write down that on, on your note? Oh, I did, actually, but... I decided against it because, well... I'd had my fill of killing. I didn't seem a little much. Mm -hmm. Instead of murdering his sister, Kevin decides to write a series of notes to her. Let's talk about the notes that you wrote. Uh, how many notes did you write? Three. Three. Uh, there was one in the living room. Yeah. That one was addressed to who? Desiree, my sister. Because I knew she was... Ah, she's a good girl, but rather sensitive. I knew she would lose her head if she kind of saw that. Do you remember what the note said? <sighs> Keep your head. Hurry. She might still be alive, although I highly doubt it in parentheses. Mm -hmm. But when you wrote the note, you knew your mom was already dead. Oh, yeah, I knew yeah. it. And, you know, so it was just messing of, with, with Desiree by writing that, that she might still be alive? Yeah, in my sick sense of humor, okay. I was pretty well off my rocker by then. The other note he writes read, Chase me. Sorry for the mess. Uh, and then there's a second note in, 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 in your mom's bedroom. What did that one say? Do you remember? Chase me. Was that addressed to the police or, or to who? Uh, I was just in a, I was in a very playful mood at the time. Okay. I just, well, I just wanted to run. I just wanted to see how far I could get. But yeah. So what, uh, your plan was to leave town? Or what, uh, according to one of the notes that you wrote? Oh, yeah, but actually, bus, yeah, the, gray, the Greyhound bus. Mm -hmm. I was going to try to get out of the state or anything, really. After writing these letters, Kevin planned to go on the run. Life as a wanted man who killed and raped his own mother seemed exciting. So from here, he got on his bike and leisurely rode around town, not really sure where he was going to go next. But after a while, the reality of the situation began to set in. He had nowhere to go. No money, no car. He obviously couldn't go to his sister, and he had murdered the only real person who cared about him. Initially, my plan was just to run, run, run as far as I can, but then I ended up crying my eyes out in like the thick woods, like, oh, uh, what did I do? And I realized, oh, you don't know what you lost until you've already lost it. And so I just, I knew that my life wasn't gonna go anywhere, not anymore, so I just kind of gave it up midway. Mm -hmm. At this point, Kevin decided to turn himself in, and he rang the doorbell at the first house he could find, which just so happened to be the home of Timothy Johnson and LaWanda Houston. After this horrifying confession, the Corpus Christi detectives were baffled, and they just wanted to know why. I'm just interested because it's something unusual, and you're here telling us about it, and you appear to be a nice guy. You appear to be a good guy. You know, you're not yelling and screaming at him. You seem very rational. You're very rational. You're a good guy. Just sort of trying to figure it out. That's all. They even asked him if he got the idea from violent video games. Person. Yeah, basically. How'd you come up with the idea to kill her and have sex with her? Did it, it, How did I come up with it? Yeah, with it. It's been a developing idea. Uh, my brain. Mm -hmm. 
But you haven't gotten ideas from games or videos, or you're not into uh, uh, some of those some uh, dark games? Some things inspired me, but they did not necessarily plant the seed. Mm -hmm. Get me? They didn't plant the seed, but they did egg me on, rather, I guess. So what was the motivation? Matricide, the murdering of one's mother, is not very uncommon. As we know, most murders are committed by someone close to them. But in most cases, when someone murders their parent, there's usually a motive like money. Other times, it's because the person is being abused or mistreated. But that wasn't the case here. Kimberly Hill was a great mother. She was a great person. And Kevin himself said that she did nothing to deserve this. You feel sorry you did this to your mom? In a way, yes, but I wouldn't take back what I did. It's strange, really. I did love her, in a way. Uh, uh, being mean to you? Oh, no, no, she's been the best mother. Okay, so she did nothing that she did? Oh, absolutely nothing, no. She, if I was to ask you what did she do to deserve this, what would you answer? Absolutely nothing. So what was the motivation here? Uh, well, despite how I ended her life, I'm kind of more fascinated by the more artistic ways of murder, the meticulous manner, the way they cut them open, and just slice them to pieces. I mean, such care, such love. And Kevin Davis was fascinated with death what the inside of a body looks like, which was pretty obvious even before the murder of his mother with what he did with the family cat. At this point, what do you consider yourself? You consider yourself, I'm gonna use a dirty word, okay, but I, I, don't, mean oh. to, I don't mean to insult you, no, okay? Do you consider you mentally disturbed? Do you consider yourself crazy? Do you, what, do you consider yourself any of those? Or do you think you're okay? You just got some bad thoughts? I'm not mentally disturbed. I mean, I'm sane. I know exactly what I did. I know that it's wrong in the, tradi in the traditional yeah. sense of wrong. Oh, well, it was just a fantasy you had. And yeah. You had to carry it out. Carry it out. Yeah. Not yet. Now I feel vaguely uh, right. Right. kind of like I'm done. Mm -hmm. So, you still feel like like well, you're done with your mom. You still feel like you want to keep on killing to keep on you know with other fantasies. How do you feel? I came here to pay for my crime, so I guess I should continue with the truth. Mm -hmm. Truthfully. Yes, definitely. I would kill again. The detectives then ask, well, do you want to kill us? Oh, no. Rabbit men aren't my thing, actually. Women. Yeah. Kevin only ever fantasized about killing women. And here, he tells the detectives about what his ideal murder scenario would look like. I tell you what, give me your fancy of killing a woman. Oh, your fancy killing would be your age killing. What could that be? This is a little peculiar. I'm on camera. Okay. Um. <laughs> I'm not surprised at what I'm going to hear, but uh, you tell me. Maybe dressing up in a nice suit. Sneaking into her house, disabling her boyfriend. You know, yeah, I'd, I'd bring a pretty dress with me to dress her up in. I 
I was always into strangling, but after after that last um, blunder, I guess maybe something big and sharp would be more along uh, be more along my thing. Mm -hmm. And I could, I don't know, probably decapitate her, as I I prefer my women dead. Um, okay. I'd dress her up. I'd stitch her up. Kind of just kind of try to work the head back on, perhaps. And then I'd go to town, and it would be a night to remember. Mm -hmm. And then I'd kind of just burn everything and run for the hills. It's interesting to hear this because we see this a lot with serial killers. With each murder, they find exactly what they like. If Kevin would have gotten away with this, he probably would have taken what he learned from this kill and used it on the next one. And he himself claimed that he definitely would kill again. Luckily, that would never happen. With this, police took Kevin Davis away to be booked into jail while they contacted his sister to let her know what happened. Uh, we need to find your sister just, just to make sure that she's okay. You said you didn't hurt her, right? I did not. Uh, we're trying to call her on the phone. We can get her. Does she go to school? No, she doesn't go to school currently. Oh, okay, because we thought maybe she was at college or something. Where does she, does she work? She works at Mesquite Bar and Grill, I believe. Um, That's the one in uh, Saratoga? A, I would not know, yeah. but probably. And her name is Desiree? Desiree Hill, yeah. And I can't imagine what went through Desiree's mind when she heard not only of her mother's brutal death and rape, but also that her own brother planned to do the same to her. Here's what Desiree would later say of her mother, Kimberly. She was the best mother that you could ask for. She, you know, she just, she worked two jobs. And she would later tell him at the trial, you took the only person who had your back, now you're alone. As word spread throughout Corpus Christi of what happened at the Windrush Apartments, the entire city was in shock. Kimberly's family was in shock. And here's what her father had to say. It's just a sad situation. It's all uncalled for. I mean, he didn't have to do that. You know what I mean. And uh, I'm sorry. Uh, you just don't take your mother's life. Now, at the end of Kevin's interrogation, detectives ask him, what punishment do you think you deserve? Here's what he had to say. Well, just tell me, what do you think should happen to you? What do you think your punishment should be? Uh, whatever the judge, the people, the jury deems fit, I can rot, I can suffer for years, or I can be given the death penalty, whatever they think. What do you think you deserve? Killing your mom? I deserve your mom. And that's pretty much what would happen. His trial started seven months after his confession on October 6th, 2014. And to everyone's surprise, he actually pled not guilty, despite his confession and all of the evidence against him. Eventually, however, he changed it to guilty. Well, shocking and very disturbing testimony today in the murder trial of Kevin Davis. He's accused of killing his mother with a hammer. On December 20, or excuse me, on March 27th, police found Kimberly Hill dead in her apartment. 
A woman living on County Road 61 told police Davis had knocked on her door saying he just murdered someone and asked her to call 911. Today, the jury watched the police interrogation where Davis admitted to the murder. At his trial, the jury was able to see his true colors. Even then, Kevin was not remorseful of what he did. He even smiled at the jury at times when they were reading off the disturbing details of the case. The emotions that he showed were sometimes snickering, sometimes smiling at jurors and, and those who were testifying didn't show any type of remorse at all. Ultimately, he would get the sentence he deserved. From the courts now, justice, you can say, has been served for the victim who died at the hands of her own son, 18-year-old Kevin Davis, will spend the rest of his life in prison for the brutal attack that claimed the life of Kimberly Hill. Kimberly Hill was a great mother. She did her best to raise her son the right way. She always put him first and always gave him everything he ever needed. In return, she was murdered and sexually assaulted by her own son. This case goes to show that sometimes people are just inherently evil. And unfortunately, there's really nothing we can do about it. And to wrap this story up, we want to quote the end of Kevin's suicide note. Because in the end, that's the true lesson of this horrific story. It's kind of funny how you never really know someone. Not even your own son. Or brother. Hey everybody, it's Colin here. And Courtney. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Murder in America. This case was um, disturbing to say the least. Yeah, you think you see the worst of the world and then people always surprise you with something more. This story was just so hard to get through for me and just it's just so horrific. I can't even comprehend how Kevin's family members, you know, must have felt after all of this. Yeah, I've truly never in my life heard of a case that's just so disturbing. Well, with all that said, we want to shout out our new patrons this week. Amanda Keith, Jacqueline, Marissa Banky, Jennifer Wilson, Kat, Jordan May, Darren Parfit, Enrique Yehudel, Tate Hag, Dakota Stardy, Frankie Upston, Shannon Greaves, Lynn, Teresa Beasley, Jules Devine, Kayla, Josie Ryan, Brandon Garcia, Fernando Gonzalez, Shelby, Carol Plyler, Sierra and Corey Courier, Emma Weatherall, and Natalie Yacoub. Thank you all. That's an insane list in one week of, of new patrons, isn't it? Yeah, that's crazy. Thank you guys for supporting us. If you want to become a patron, you can get our episodes ad-free every single week. Um, also, if you want to see pictures from every single case, I highly recommend following our Instagram at Murder in America. We post every single week and we love talking to you guys on there. So make sure you follow us. Just to let everyone know, next week, Courtney and I are celebrating our one year of marriage anniversary. So we're going to be out of town. So we will not have an episode next week. But when we're back, it's going to be a good one. I've been working on some crazy cases for you guys. And you're going to love them. So it'll be worth the wait. I promise. Well, we love y'all and see you soon.